This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, February 2nd, 2022. Happy Groundhog Day. Let's hope that little guy is delivering us good news today. Later on our show, what's the one thing a set designer doesn't want to produce on stage? We talk with a pair of accomplished set designers whose work has included projects with Theater Squared. That's ahead. The National Weather Service's winter storm warning for the listening area is in effect until midnight Thursday night. There will be combinations of ice, snow, sleet, and cold. Snow accumulations are predicted of 3 to 6 inches, with isolated totals of up to 8 inches in parts of northwest Arkansas. Ice accumulations could reach one-tenth of an inch, with some places in far northwest Arkansas getting two-tenths of an inch of ice. The expected inclement weather the rest of this week means the planned vaccination clinic at the J.B. Hunt corporate headquarters in Lowell Friday will be postponed until Friday, February 11th. The number of new COVID-19 infections in Arkansas is lowering when week-to-week reports are compared to each other. Yesterday, the Arkansas Department of Health reported more than 4,600 new diagnoses, about 3,300 fewer than the report on last Tuesday. Active cases dropped by more than 5,900 yesterday. The ADH counts another 39 deaths from the virus in the report and four fewer hospitalizations. As of yesterday, there were 1,711 Arkansas hospital beds occupied by patients with COVID-19. This is Ozarks at Large. The musical Turning 15 on the Road to Freedom won't be on stage at Walton Arts Center as originally planned since the national tour has been canceled. But we'll still be able to see a production through the Walton Arts Center. Details about that in a few minutes. Turning 15 on the Road to Freedom is based on the life of Linda Blackman Lowry, the youngest person to participate in the Voting Rights March of 1965 from Selma to Montgomery. She celebrated her 15th birthday during that march. It was even earlier, when she was seven, that she first vowed to work for social justice. Her mother died in childbirth when she could not receive treatment or a blood transfusion at the nearest white hospital. Blood had to be sent from a Birmingham hospital 90 minutes away, and it arrived too late. We reached Linda Blackman Lowry yesterday by phone. She says telling her story for the book that inspired the new musical wasn't easy. Turning 15 on the road to freedom was not easy, and it still isn't. Um, It took me 40-plus years to be able to talk about different things, um, including the uh, death of my mom when I was seven. Um, And that's what gave me my determination to change things. I made a vow when I was seven that when I got big, I was going to change things and nobody would ever have to grow up without a mommy again because of the color of her skin. And um, getting big meant seeing uh, and hearing Dr. King speak at the age of 13. And um, being empowered by three words he said, steady, loving confrontation. And to this day, I use those three words in in my life and, and things I try to do. Um, going to jail nine times, twice in a state prison camp, <laughs> and being and uh, of course being beaten on that bridge, along with many others, and. Um, being able to walk from Selma to Montgomery and make the entire trip, turning 15 on the second day of that march. None of that um, has been easy. But it took me over 40 years to be able to tell the story of turning 15 on the road to freedom and to see it as a play, a musical play, as many times as I have seen it, Kyle, I get excited. I sit up there and cry um, watching it because I, I've seen it, you know, from the beginning 
in person to um, now virtually, and and it doesn't matter how many times I see it, I I will uh, cry doing watching it. What is it like to see it live with other people? And I'm assuming some people in the audience who might not know your story, might not know who you are, and to watch your life <laughs> up there on stage with with strangers who are hearing about it for the first time. What's that like? That that's um, now that's the interesting, <laughs> really interesting part to me, because I, I see so many ranges of emotion from uh, young, old, <laughs> and older, <laughs> including myself. And and people being in awe, and I'm thinking, oh my God, they're in awe of something that I did, something I said. So that um, that that empowers me to keep going when I feel tired and I I, I want to get give up. That empowers me to keep going. I imagine there are people who are in awe. But I imagine there are also people who are inspired to see what you did then, what you have done since, and and perhaps there can be at least some of that fire in their belly after learning about your story. I believe so. I get um, so many letters from from schools, from um, um, elementary, intermediate, and high schoolers uh, that has heard just a recording from uh, NPR, you know, in their states and so forth, uh, cities, and tell me how inspired they are, that they know that they too can make change, and that's what they're going to do as they grow. And not saying, I'm going to wait until I get big, but most of them say, they're going to make change as they grow. Because I let um, young and old alike know that they have a voice and they have to use that voice or they're going to lose that voice. And that change will only come when um, you decide to do something about it. You can't wait for... uh, we, we'll never have another uh, Martin Luther King or uh, Malcolm X or uh, um, anybody like that leading the forefront. You have to take up that mantle and, and lead it. I often tell people when I'm speaking that um, in the 60s, it, it seemed as if seemed to me that we, the children of the movement, was uh, ordained to do what we did. Yeah. We couldn't let our parents go out and and uh, march and, and get arrested and lose their jobs. We, back in the, in the 60s, knew if that was to happen, it was going to break up the family unit. And um, we also knew, because growing up for me, I grew up in a community called the uh, George Washington Carver Homes, the good old GWC projects. And uh, we were a community. There was unity in that community. And um, the children of the 60s, In Birmingham, 63, Selma, 65, we put unity in this nation. We we united the nation. And uh, we knew our jobs was kind of dangerous, but we knew who our enemy was. We knew that the people under those white sheets did not look like us. Now, the job that uh, people have today, as far as I'm concerned, that we have today is to put the word human 
back in the word humanity. Given what you've experienced, given that you have seen change, but given that there are setbacks and there have been regressions, I know you talk about bringing human back into the word humanity. Are you optimistic about the future that we have? I'm going to always be optimistic because I, I, I didn't know uh, and didn't believe that it's, as a child that um, we could change uh, things, and, and, and we did. So I'm going to always be optimistic, yes. I, I, I believe that uh, we as a people, and I'm talking about all of God's rainbow, all colors, we as a people will make that change. We will have to sing, uh, we shall overcome. One day, my uh, great-great-grands and so forth, along with others, will be able to sing, we have overcome. I cannot wait to, to get my ticket and watch it. I, I understand why it's canceled. We're in a horribly confusing, complicated time, but I can't wait to see it uh, yeah. virtually. And you will enjoy it. I, I know you will. <laughs> Everyone that that um, will see Turning 15 on the Road to Freedom, the musical play, um, we'll uh, 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 we'll get something from it. I, I'm 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 sure, and my voice will always to me be heard because whether it's me speaking as I am now on this radio or somebody watching the play or somebody reading the book, um, they're going to get, they're going to take something away from it um, and keep that part of whatever they take within them. And they're going to work and make and, and do do something good with it. I believe my voice will never be silent that way. Linda Blackman-Lowry talked with us yesterday. The tour, Turning 15 on the Road to Freedom, was canceled, but will still be virtually part of this year's Colgate Classroom Series and the Walton Arts Center 10 by 10 Series. Tickets are free for schools as part of the Colgate Classroom Series. Public tickets, $10 per household. Ticket holders will receive a link tomorrow to view the performance. That link will be active through February 16th. There is also a question and answer session with Ms. Lowry included in that virtual performance. You can learn more at waltonartcenter.org. Well, my granddaddy marched mm-hmm. and my grandmama too. Mm-hmm. I never thought it'd be something that I'd have to do. But I'll march if I must. Mm-hmm. I'm on mission, you see. And mm-hmm. I'll be damned if my children have to march for me. Now I believe in the If I die, I can't sing, and if I can't sing, I'll die. So we can sing for one another, now let's give it a try. So we sing Let's sing out, march on from the musical Turning 15 on the Road to Freedom. You'd have to be a groundhog living under the ground to not know by now, winter isn't just coming to our corner of the world, it's here. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Kruth gives us tips about weathering the storm. Snow, ice, sleet, and all-around cold weather are in the forecast for much of Arkansas, eastern Oklahoma, and Missouri in the coming days. The National Weather Service in Tulsa is predicting between 4 to 6 inches of snow for northwest Arkansas, while areas around Fort Smith could get up to 2 inches, but more icy conditions. As people brace for extreme weather, several of the region's businesses and school districts preemptively closed on Wednesday, anticipating dangerous road conditions. Latricia Woodruff with the Arkansas Division of Emergency Management says being prepared for the worst is always a good idea. If you are in your car, make sure that you have a weather kit inside of your car. That means making sure that you have extra clothing, non-perishable food items, jumper cables. Make sure that your tires are inflated to the proper inflation level. 
Um, just create an emergency kit inside of your house as well, making sure that if you have to be hunkered down in your home for uh, more than a day or so, that you have all the medications you need, that you have food that you need, you have blankets, you have a weather radio. The, again, the most important thing is to just to be aware of what's going to happen in your area. And Ed Kalanisi, a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Tulsa, says the coming weather looks similar to what residents experienced in February of 2021. Last year, for instance, was a La Nina pattern as well. Uh, in fact, we had a December that was the 27th warmest December on record for Fayetteville. January was the 20th warmest January on record. Then all of a sudden, February hit us and it was, turned out to be the second coldest February in Fayetteville. So the fact that we've had fairly mild overall winter weather conditions uh, so far this winter really doesn't mean that pattern is going to continue. We could still have uh, significant winter storms in this area. We can still have significant cold in this area. He says the severe cold and winter weather are likely to only last a couple of weeks based on the current La Nina weather pattern. But he says paying attention to the forecast is the best way to prepare. So when it comes down to it, we're talking about literally a degree or two at the, at the ground level and a couple thousand feet above the ground that can make the world a difference. But overall, we can see uh, an event in advance, days in advance, that's going to produce significant precipitation in the area that has the possibility to produce winter weather. So staying up with the forecast as we go along, especially when winter weather is being uh, expected, is key And Woodruff says there are some common mistakes that people make during these bouts of winter weather. Again, I'll go back to when they use these generators inside of their homes. That's a big no-no. A lot of people use space heaters during this time. Uh, Obviously, they're made for inside of your home, but you want to make sure that you don't keep them close to anything that could cause it to start a fire Uh, Try to get the ones that when they're knocked over that they have the automatic switch that turns off. So you want to pay attention to things like that as well. Uh, People still these days will try to heat their home with their stoves. Uh, That's something that you shouldn't be doing as well. She also encourages people to have working carbon monoxide detectors, especially when using a generator. Some ways people can ensure their homes are ready for an Arctic blast are by using simple techniques, like to keep pipes from freezing, leave some faucets dripping slightly, and clean ice and snow away from outdoor appliances. She also says people should report power outages to their providers when they happen and have flashlights and charged batteries ready just in case. And while road crews with the Arkansas Department of Transportation are prepared with salt to treat the roads, Woodruff says the best thing for drivers to do is stay at home if possible. So that you don't have to get out on the roadways because it causes quite a bit of accidents out there. And we have first responders and our safety personnel out there as well. But they're driving on the same roads that you're driving on, and we want them to be as safe as possible. She says the Division of Emergency Management updates their social media regularly. That's at AR Emergencies. For road conditions, go to idrivearkansas.com and in Oklahoma, oktraffic.org. And for more on winter weather tips, you can visit ready.gov. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. In the latest episode of Undisciplined, a podcast co-created by the University of Arkansas Department of African and African American Studies and KUAF, host Dr. Karee Banton talks with Dr. Jacqueline Wersma-Mosley, a U of A professor whose area of expertise is in cultural competency. As Wersma-Mosley puts it, cultural competency is about learning how to better relate to people who are both similar and different from you. Here's an excerpt with our host, Dr. Karee Banton. How do we measure cultural competence? Like, do I get like a <laughs> hundred? Do I get an automatic A? Because <laughs> you identify as a black woman? Yes. <laughs> Um, You know, surprisingly, there are no demographic differences in cultural competency. So racial ethnic groups, people of color don't score higher than white people. Age isn't even a factor. Gender. Like that's the surprising thing when I tell people that because it's all about individuals 
determination to want to learn. So it's really education and up to an individual. And there's just so many different reasons why we might fall in terms of a in, in inside of a different category of cultural competence. So it kind of helps to think about the intercultural development inventory. So it's probably the best valid, reliable assessment out there. I've looked at lots of different ones. And, you know, people take a 50 item assessment and it scores them on this spectrum of really a mono-ethnic mindset to a intercultural mindset. So when people take this assessment, they find out whether they're in one of five categories, denial, polarization, minimization, acceptance, or adaptation. So denial is the first one, and it's only 2% of people. And it, it sounds like what it is. They deny that there are people out there that are different from them, right? So imagine a young student at the University of Arkansas coming from a very homogenous rural community with 200 people who look like them, act like them, believe the same things like them. They just may not be aware of difference. They're completely in denial. The, the thing to know, though, it's really easy to move them out of denial because you just start exposing them to differences. So they come to the University of Arkansas and they might see some diversity in terms of people of color, gender, sexual orientation, religious, any of those. So I hear a lot when people say denial is the backbone of racism. Mm -hmm. And I always say, I I don't agree. I think it's the colorblindness minimization. So denial isn't very many people. Most people know racism exists. Mm -hmm. So denial is just very few people. I think it is young people who are just completely unaware. So then they move into polarization, which is a fascinating group. It's about 16% of people, and it, it's very an us versus them mindset. So they judge people who are different from them, which is a kind of a natural tendency. You're moving out of similarities. Now you're focusing on differences, but you're judging them because you're not sure. You know, people say like, well, I don't like the the way that those people do those things. That's not my culture. It's not my upbringing, right? So they start to judge them. So people fall into either defense where they're defensive of their own way. They feel like their values are the better one because that's all they know, right? But more people are in reversal. And reversal is when people value others' cultures over their own which is very confusing, right? So for a lot of our students who who identify as white, Caucasian, European European descent, I call that white guilt. Mm -hmm. So we all know that phrase where they are really struggling with their own identity. So people in reversal are usually ashamed of their own identities. They're embarrassed. So for a lot of our students in my classes who are, who are, the entire classes about racism, oppression, the history of slavery um, in the United States, there's a lot of um, icky feelings, you know, coming up with them. And so they will be in reversal if they're really struggling. I see a lot of performative allies as well, mm. where they're like, hey, I'm, I'm all about Black Lives Matter, but I'm going to throw it into people's faces if they don't agree with me because they're in polarization. They're that us versus them. So they're very, again, in some ways, um, defensive. So the big thing that I notice with folks in reversal is they don't have a strong identity. So that's step one in developing cultural competence. They need to learn who they are and their role. And I'll come back to that later. So then when you start to get folks to see similarities, so if someone's in polarization, you don't want to throw Black Lives Matter in their face because that's defensive to them. You want to throw similarities. Hey, how are we alike? You know, because I mean, the majority of human beings are alike when you come down to it. We believe in the same things, right? Most of us believe in families, Mm -hmm. you know, being happy, right? The main essential ingredients of human beings. We all have this, a lot of similarities. So you focus on that. You move into minimization. That's unfortunately where people stop growing. So that's 65% of people are in minimization. That is the, I don't see. It can't be that bad. No, it's a safe space for them Mm -hmm. because you're focused on equality. You're focused on humanity. You're focused on, well, I don't see color. Um, I I don't care if you're black, blue, green, brown, red, or yellow. I'm going to treat you how I want to be treated, right? right? That's that idea of I treat everyone the same. doesn't matter where they come from. Unfortunately, they're masking differences, So they're completely ignoring that we don't come to the table equal, that we are not equal. We all have very different identities, right? And the thing to note with minimization is those folks, they have really good hearts. They have really good intent. They Good white people. Right, good white people. They believe in equality. That sounds good, right? That's why they stay there. They're like, wait, I thought I'm supposed to believe in equality. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, they're the ones who 
really ignore systemic oppression. They ignore inequity, right? The fact that we don't come to the table. And they're the ones most likely to perpetrate microaggressions. They're the most likely to say something to offend someone because, well, it wouldn't offend me if I asked, where are you from, Karee? No, where are you, where are you really, really from? from? Right? I hear a little accent. You have an accent too, ma'am. Do I? Yeah, yeah. From Iowa? I can hardly understand you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so minimization, that is the problem with where we are in terms of social justice, because it's the colorblind. We just had a black president. We don't have racism in the United States anymore, right? So right. those are, and that's the majority of people. That's the majority of faculty. That's the majority of teachers, the majority of juries, right? They're saying, I don't see color, but they're completely masking and minimizing someone's experiences and that they're different. So acceptance is the next orientation. And that's when you start going back to focus on differences. And this is where people are now able to understand that systemic racism and oppression exist. Mm -hmm. So now you can start talking about those conversations with them because they're able to be like, huh, okay, I, I didn't know that. And, you know, people don't know what they don't know. And, and you meet them where they are, and you try to help them understand that. So when people move into acceptance, that's only 15% of people that are accepting. They appreciate cultural differences, both similarities and differences. They sort of really get it. So they can talk the talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, but they're not able to walk the walk. They're not actually doing anything. They're just sort of on the sidelines going, okay, I really believe in this, which is, which is important. And so those folks is it because walking the walk would require them to give up do power? something yes yeah yes and we can talk about that as mm-hmm. the university of arkansas I, there yeah i got some stuff <laughs> to say yeah. about that but so acceptance is 15 percent of people they appreciate both differences and similarities but they need more experiences so they have to do something action is you know speaks louder than words and so once folks start doing that that's how they move into adaptation which is only 2% of people in our adaptation. And those are the change makers. Those are the warriors, social justice warriors, actually creating policies for change, addressing systems, giving up their their power and privilege in some ways to be active, um, you know, really upsetting people at the Thanksgiving dinner table, (laughs) right? They're doing something. Um, But the, the issue that I say, two things. One, those folks are tired, so Gosh, that's the biggest thing for so adaptation, draining. right? Like everyone else is just learning and talking about it. They're actually doing it. So all the load is on 2% of people. And then secondly, it's I always say cultural competency is not an event. It's not like you get there and you're like, boom, done. All right, yeah. sweet. I'm done. I don't have to learn anything else. I It's a journey, especially when it comes to uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and all the different communities. It's always changing, right? Words are changing. Vocabulary is changing. We're learning about new communities that maybe we didn't talk about five years ago, like neurodiversity, right, is a community that we're starting to talk about and consider them. New narratives are entering the fold. Unheard voices, previously silenced voices. It's like, oh, my gosh. Exactly. So that's. That's why it's a journey. You have to continue learning and growing to, con- to stay culturally competent. You can hear that full conversation today. In the latest episode of Undisciplined, and you can get Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to be part of an upcoming episode of Undisciplined, we're hosting four live podcast episodes throughout the KUAF listening area. Our first live event will be at Into View Art Gallery and Studios in Rogers, Tuesday evening from 5 to 7. You can find out more about those upcoming live events at KUAF.com. Undisciplined is produced by Matthew Moore. Assistant producer is Sean Shoemaker. It's a collaboration between KUAF and the University of Arkansas Department of African and African American Studies. As the standoff over Ukraine continues, tensions are rising around another old conflict in Europe. The multi-ethnic state of Bosnia and Herzegovina is once again in crisis. The dream was the war would end and people would get reacquainted and remember all they had in common. There has been a lot more polarization. That story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 
All things considered today from 3 to 6 on KUAF, you can always ask your smart speaker to please play KUAF at any time to hear our station. There will be a public send-off at the Botanical Garden of the Ozark Saturday for a rehabilitated owl. The barred owl will be released by Northsong Wild Bird Rehabilitation at 4 after coming to the rehabilitation service with a broken leg. Admission to the garden will be waived Saturday afternoon from 4 to 5. The release will be free, but the BGO is asking for people expecting to attend to RSVP at bgozarks.org. And like any event happening in the next few days... You might want to check before you go to make sure it's still happening after we get the ice and snow. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. This is Ozarks at Large. If you've attended the current production of The Mountaintop from Theater Squared, your first visual experience in the theater is the set, a stunning reproduction of the Lorraine Motel, where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spent the final night of his life. That set was designed by Tanya Oriana. Last month, we talked with her and another set designer, Kimberly Powers, about the art and science of set design. Tanya says she begins the process of creating a set with basically a blank page. At least for me, I try to start uh, really, really open. So I, um, you know, I'll go through the scripts and I'll sort of start a tracking list of like, there's this many different locations and it takes place in these places. I don't necessarily hold myself to what the script says the scenography needs to be, but I do like to know uh, kind of how many times they're in the orchard versus the bedroom or something like that. Um, and then I, I do a ton of research and I also do a lot of writing where I just start, I, I do kind of flow charts where I'll just do like, different words that come to mind when I've read the script and just start like kind of webbing out from there and and seeing like I don't know it's, it's really like starting like I always say I'm just throwing paint at a wall first and then seeing what kind of lands and then I'll share that whole thing with the director and, and see what they respond to um, and then we just keep growing from there. Kimberly Powers let me bring you in you did uh, the, sci- the the set for designing women at T2 and what I remember about that set is the intricacies, right? You're thinking about a vase, a picture, uh, a sconce. Does that all go into what you think about? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I would echo a lot of what Tanya said as far as my process is concerned. And then also just add that we're always digging into the details to figure out who these people are and how to best tell their story. So all everything from sconces to paintings on the wall to what kind of door is on stage is going to give us more information about who they are, when they are, how they are, and why we're here. Have either of you ever been given something where you think, I don't think this can work? I mean, whether it's a, a mechanical issue or some sort of effect that a director or a playwright is looking for? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you get those kind of requests regularly. I don't want to speak for a ton here, but I feel like I do at least. And that's okay. And then sometimes it's not always about like saying um, you should or shouldn't do this. It's okay, if, if we do this, then here are the repercussions of that choice. Um, if we want to put something on a turntable and turn it around, that's a big ask of the shop. And is that really where we want to put our resource? At some point, if, a, if it's really, really important to everybody, I step aside and go, okay, well, I will make it work. Even though I'm going to tell you, I don't love this plan, but we're, I'm going to help. Well, I'm going to make it happen. But um, yeah, all sorts of strange requests sometimes. <laughs> uh, and we just kind of help guide as, and help try to see both uh, the, what the shops can, what they need versus what the director needs. We kind of liaise a little bit in between. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, I I do a similar thing. I think there's like a fine dance of like, you know, you don't want to say no to ideas because I think Mm -hmm. what, what's really nice is that a director's part of their job is to like be a big vision and to sort of bring everyone along in that big vision and to like take us places we thought we couldn't go. And so, but it is a little bit of a balance of like, how do you, how do you have a big vision within a budget that is, you know, sort of aware of what a theater can do? Cause it doesn't feel good to push a place beyond their capacity. So, you know, so I think I'm always, so I have a similar, like, 
let's just be transparent. What you're asking for is this, you know, if we make a car fly, we can do nothing else. Is it, <laughs> and the whole blocking be about that flying car. If so, then great. If not, let's think about it. <laughs> um, let me also, because you did, you did the set design for native gardens, correct? Oh yeah. That's, oh, yeah. Okay. So that set made me feel like I was actually watching these neighbors in their backyard, which is hard to do in an indoor space. It wasn't too much. It wasn't over the top. There wasn't a flourish that said, you know, oh, look how clever I am. It just felt warm and comfortable. And is that a sweet spot that is difficult to get to, especially when you're doing out outside? Um. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the level of difficulty of everything, I, I do a lot of drafts. Like I'm definitely somebody who between the first model and the end model, there's probably been like eight models or something. So it is it is a lot of work and a, like a lot of joyful work. So I'm in that space. It It's the smaller theater, but the, the script calls for two story houses, two two story houses. <laughs> Um, so the the sort of like puzzle piecing of it, I mean, one of my favorite things about set design is I think it's so much about problem solving. And, and like when I was younger, I was that was like my thing in math, like I loved word problems. And so um, I think there's a similar like you're you're always in a space. Right. And, you know, there's site specific work, but you're always in a space you're always have a, a, I don't know if limitations is the right word, but like parameters, like it has to fit in this space. It has to fit in this budget. It has to fit this many people. It has to tell this story. And it, it becomes sort of a fun, like puzzle piece game that you're like, oh, these aren't restrictions. They're sort of fun parameters to, to work creatively in. Kimberly, I mean, I, I want to ask you about what sort of conversations do you have internally about the role of a set that you're help that you're designing. Well, um, I mean, the, the way you described again, uh, Tanya, you're 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 great with the words this morning. I'm it's quite as eloquent, but the um, I, I would echo a lot of what uh, what you said, and then also uh, we're designing women. When you when you talked about native gardens walking and feeling very cozy, that was exactly I wanted. I wanted the feeling of somebody walking into designing women and go, oh, I recognize this place. So, but that was that particular show. For the Royale, it was a very different feeling. And that was intentionally, like it, so it's the same space, but very contracted, far less people on, on stage and a very different kind of story. We wanted the feeling of being a part of an audience, uh, of being a spectators in a sporting event, in a boxing event. And to have that sense of time and, and space um, was for those two very disparate shows, of course, but um, that, that feeling, I, we're always trying to uh, kind of find a feeling so that the audience, when they walk in, they recognize something about it, which is to say in Designing Women, it was, oh, I know these people in this place and there's something familiar about it. Whereas uh, the Royale, it wanted to take them back in time almost immediately and feel like they're watching a boxing match. What I loved about the set for Royale is it meshed, I thought, perfectly with the storytelling, right? It, it's about a boxer and and the direction. Obviously, the actors are not hitting each other, and so there was this developed, a foot stomp would represent a punch, and so there was this sort of, I don't know, this sort of abstract or let your imagination sort of fill in some of that. And I thought the set had that same sort of feel. Was that an intention? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's part of when we're when we're mining the script for information, it's always about okay, what kind of, not just what is the story you're telling, what, what way do we want to tell the story? And as long as we're, and that's why we have so many discussions along the way to make sure that we are all telling the same story in the same way. And so that when productions don't work as well, and I've certainly been part of these where you're like, oh, whoops, we missed a conversation here or there. Things just don't feel like they align correctly. And so with the, the message isn't as clear to the audience, in my experience. All right, I have uh, three potentially silly questions open to both of you. I apologize if they're too silly. Potentially silly question number one, is there a common thing that can be called for in a set that you go, oh, I'd really rather not, whether it be a window that opens, a door that opens, a sink that works? Are there any of these common things that you go, eh, I really wish this didn't 
wasn't included. Cars. Cars on stage make me crazy. Oh my God. I was going to say cars on stage. I have one coming up too, and I got to figure it out because cars are hard to do. Am I right? I mean, I don't get to talk with set designers very often, so I'm very excited about this conversation. (laughs) Tell me. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's usually my issue. Yeah. Every time a writer puts a car scene, I'm like, okay, if there's like 10 car scenes and we we're just going to have a car on stage, fine. Great. But it's usually like one two minute scene and you know, we're not going to put a car on stage for a two minute scene. So I, I, it's just always like, oh, we're going to figure out where headlights are coming from. I don't know the car. I I agree. A car scene is. is, Well, because uh, it gets abstracted. So you got to make sure that your, that abstraction meshes with all other abstraction or everything's real. Then suddenly do you have a car on stage or what are we doing here? (laughs) So it is hard to make it all make sense together. Yeah, I love that answer. Not a silly question. <laughs> okay, potentially silly question number two. Is this uh, a vocation that you can literally take home? Do you go home and go, you know what? I wish that couch was there. I wish this was a different color. Can you turn it off? Or are you looking at your living space always thinking about changing? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't think you can turn it off. I think that happens with most artists like the live your, I don't know, art and life are, are connected so much. So I don't think you can turn it off. I rearrange, I'm like famous for rearranging my office, like every, every two months or something. Like, just like I started, like, I think I should everything to just be on wheels because I need to like change directions all the time. Um, and I, I think that's my set design part, but it, no, I, I don't think you can turn it off. I <laughs> It's funny, and this is why I appreciate that I get to talk with another set designer. I'm I'm completely the opposite. Oh. I like doing art for myself. I have no interest in decorating my house. Don't tell anybody. But I'm I, I, I'm like oh, I need to do that. I'll get to it eventually. And I I, I sort of think about it, and then I put it off because I'm like I don't want to. What's my budget? Because I don't have a budget that, you know, in, in theater, you, there's always parameters, budgets and stuff like that. And I can go, okay, well, I want to spend the money here, there, and the other, you know, here it's more like, I asked my, my partner, can we, Hey, can we get some new pillow? Well, okay. No. Okay. Well, all right. We're just going to, well, these pillows will be fine. I'm just going to kind of let it go. And mostly I'm chasing my six-year-old. So there's that. <laughs> all right. Potentially silly question number three. And believe me, this one's silly. You ever watch a heist movie? And in the second third of that movie, they're going over the plan. Like the car will come up here and drive and you'll blow through this safe here. And they're using a model, right, that's on the table in front of the team that's going to produce the heist. Is that something that if you were asked, not that you would help anyone rob a bank or a mint, but that's a sort of thing that you could provide for a team of would-be bank robbers? Yes, definitely. I could definitely take a set of plans and provide those. The robbery plan. So I think that'd be pretty fun. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't want to make them all a car, just to be clear. No cars. <laughs> I I actually had one of my mentors was going through like a dispute with his neighbor about where the property line was, or like, oh, it was like he, he wasn't supposed to be using one part portion of their property for like uh, a van he was trying to fit in so he had he made a huge model of both their properties and brought it into the court and w- and made a little model of of the vehicle in question and like fit it into the space to show that it did fit so he he used his skills for uh a, a legal battle and he That's won really the clever. <laughs> I have I will say I have used my drafting skills to help lay out whenever I've moved to make sure all of my stuff fits. That is a thing that I have done and has served me very well. And I've helped other people like, trust me, you don't want to do this. You want to do this. And here's why. Let me show you um, on a piece of paper. We talked with set designers Tanya Oriana and Kimberly Powers via Zoom late last month. Kimberly's sets for Theater Squared include Designing Women and The Royale. Tanya has designed sets for T2, including Native Gardens, American Mariachi, and the current production, The Mountaintop. The Momentary in Bentonville, a contemporary art space featuring today's visual, performing, and culinary arts with free admission, presents In Some Form or Fashion, a new free exhibition exploring the intersection of art and fashion through the work of six contemporary artists. Open now through March 27th. More information available at themomentary.org. This is 
Ozarks at Large. This winter marks the 150th anniversary of the first day of classes at the University of Arkansas. Charlie Allison, the executive editor of University Relations at the U of A, is thinking about some of the students who were on campus that first semester, but some were forgotten about for decades. Although eight students enrolled on the first day of classes in 1872, students continued to arrive on campus throughout the spring semester as they were able to find their way to Fayetteville. Slightly more than 100 students enrolled by the end of the semester. Most of them came from Washington County, of course, and none of them were ready to start collegiate-level courses. During the Civil War, common schools across the state had been closed. The generation of young men and women who came of age during the war missed out on their traditional education. Arkansas established a public school program in 1868, and private schools such as the Ozark Institute and the nearby Mount Comfort community also reopened. But neither public nor private venues could easily make up for the lost years of classwork. As students arrived in Fayetteville, the university's faculty members assessed the educational level of each incoming student and placed all of them in the university's preparatory department, essentially the high school level of learning. Qualifications for admission had been set by the Board of Trustees, and some of those included good moral character, minimum age limits, and a certain level of academic proficiency to be determined by the faculty. Beyond those qualifications, the trustees wrote in their first report, quote, Under resolution of your board, passed in that behalf, we have thrown the institution open to all, without regard to race, sex, or sect. Indeed, two weeks into that first semester, a young black man arrived in early February 1872, hoping to attend the nascent university. To be honest, little is known about that first black student. In fact, the public didn't even know his name until 2005, and that took some digging. A newspaper reporter for the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, alumnus Chris Branham, noticed a mention of an early black student at the university in Professor Gordon Morgan's seminal book, The Edge of Campus, a journal of black experience at the University of Arkansas. Branham contacted Morgan, a professor of sociology who had heard stories that two or three black students had attended the university at its beginning, but he had never discovered their names. Branham's inquiry prompted faculty in the Department of History to assign a doctoral student, Jeffrey Jensen, to seek the student's identity. Jensen's first stop? The Special Collections Division of the University Libraries to search through the unprocessed papers of former U of A Chancellor Willard Gatewood, a historian whose research included a focus on African-American history in Arkansas and whose research was voluminous. Jensen got settled in for the long slog. He pulled out the first folder. And then he pulled out the first document of that folder. It was a photocopy of a short news article published by the Little Rock Daily Republican in early 1873. And believe it or not, the last name of a black student at the university was in that story. <laughs> well, that was a whole lot easier than I expected. It said, and, and I quote its language, which used the word colored when referring to the black student, it said, quote, There is one colored student in the normal department at Fayetteville, and he is making excellent progress. The name of the student is McGehee, and he is preparing himself for the ministry of the Episcopal Church. We are glad to learn the fact, better one than none in that case. With that last name in hand, Jensen then checked the 1872-73 catalog of studies and found the first name of the student. His full name was James McGehee. He was listed as one of the beneficiaries who came to the university from the town of Augusta in Woodruff County. Beneficiaries were students chosen from their respective counties across the state to receive free tuition at the university. You can sort of think of them as the students who received full-ride scholarships. Each county was allotted beneficiaries based on its population, with 190 statewide. I think it's likely that one of the university's trustees, Matthias Abraham Cohn, a newspaper editor and state representative from Woodruff County, played some part in the appointment of James McGahey as a beneficiary. Although the university allowed McGehee to enroll, the school officials didn't allow him to attend classes with the white students. Instead, the president of the university, Noah Gates, taught McGehee separately in a room of the old McElroy farmhouse. McGehee continued his classwork through at least the spring of 1873, and the newspaper reported on his progress, writing that McGehee had scored 93% in spelling, 87% in reading, 95% in penmanship, 90% in arithmetic, 88% in grammar, 98% in geography, and 78% uh, in history. I did a lot better in geography than in history, too. <laughs> the newspaper editor wrote, quote, The average is an excellent one and reflects great credit on Mr. McGahee. 
Many years later, Lucy Jane Gates, the wife of the university president, recalled that other black students had also enrolled that first year. She wrote, quote, It was a surprise to all when two or three Negro boys applied for admission as students, to which they were entitled by law. Who were these additional students? What were their names? I have no definitive answer. In 1873, newspapers reported that two more African-American students were named as beneficiaries. One of them was Mark Wallace Alexander. He was a resident of the St. Francis community near Helena and was the son of State Representative James Alexander, who died unexpectedly not long after the legislative session of 1871. The Alexander family was well enough off that all of their children attended college, Oberlin, the University of Michigan, and West Point. Newspapers in 1873 reported that Judge John Bennett, a trustee of the university and a member of the Arkansas Supreme Court, appointed Mark Alexander as a university beneficiary. But his name never showed up in the early catalogs of study. Later that same year, the superintendent of public instruction for Pulaski County, Dickinson Brugman, appointed Isom Washington of Big Rock as a beneficiary to the university for the fall 1873 term. As with Alexander, the name of Isom Washington does not appear in the early university records. But it's possible they could be the two additional students whom Lucy Gates recalled. It's also, of course, possible that the two additional students came from the local Fayetteville community. Students such as Kate and Frank Sutton, a sister and brother who attended Fayetteville's mission school and could easily have applied for admission. Fayetteville's black population in 1870 made up more than 15% of the city's total population. So it's logical that black students already benefiting from public education might seek higher education. Again, though, no record of their names appears in the early university catalogs. And by the 1873-74 catalog of studies, James McGahey's name had also disappeared from the roster of students. I don't know what happened to him, why he left the university, whether he returned to Woodruff County, whether he pursued education elsewhere at a black college, such as Atlanta University in Georgia, or the Lincoln Institute up in Missouri. 1873 was the point at which Reconstruction in Arkansas began to come apart at the seams. Perhaps James McGahee was asked to leave. Perhaps he continued, but his name and the names of other black students were not included in the catalog of studies. Perhaps officials expected him to attend the branch college when it opened in Pine Bluff. I really have no idea. I simply haven't found his name anywhere after his time at the university. So I don't know the legacy of his life. The legacy of the university, though, was that the Fable campus didn't enroll another African-American student for the next 75 years. A shame on both accounts. Charlie Allison is the executive editor of University Relations at the University of Arkansas. His Wednesday considerations of the first 150 years of the university, just one part of the observation of the sesquicentennial. You can learn more at 150.uark.edu. I'm Lisa Mullins. The world's attention has been on Ukraine, but in the eastern Donbass region of Ukraine, there's been a war going on for years between government forces and Russian-backed separatists. We get a view from the east of Ukraine next time on Here and Now. Here and Now begins in just a moment at 1 on KUAF. This is 91.3 KUAF. Fayetteville. Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Decatur. Today's show was produced by Timothy Dennis. Contributors this Wednesday included Dr. Karee Banton, Daniel Carruth, and Charlie Allison. Matthew Moore produces Undisciplined with production assistance by Sean Shoemaker. Additional show prep today provided by Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Our theme is titled for Sarah. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. You can find out more about our show by going to ozarksatlarge.com. Individual stories and interviews there, as well as complete past editions of our show. You can also ask your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large to hear the most recent daily edition of the program. From the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio, I'm Kyle Kellums. Stay safe, stay warm. We'll talk again soon.